Hey guys, thank you for joining us today on Talking Scripture. Hopefully you've heard that we are now on podcasting apps. You can find Talking Scripture on Apple, Stitcher, and Spotify. Can you take a minute and just rate and subscribe to our podcast? That will go a long way in helping people find us. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be talking about 2 Nephi 31 through 33, the doctrine of Christ. Uh, He's going to start off by talking about his soul, delight, and plainness. Nephi says, Wherefore the things which I have written sufficeth me, save it be a few words which I must speak concerning the doctrine of Christ. Wherefore I shall speak unto you plainly according to the plainness of my prophesying. So right after a a lot of chapters talking about Isaiah, which I think most of us would say maybe isn't plainness, Mm -hmm. Nephi is going to be really plain, isn't he? Yep. And I'm giddy about this chapter because the truth, I tell people a lot, if I were headed to a desert island and could only take a single page of Scripture, this is the page I take, Second Nephi 31. I think it is the greatest summary in its most simplistic form of exactly what is expected for salvation, and it needs to change our paradigm. So many Latter-day Saints are in constant doubt of their own salvation, and I think it's because they don't fully understand the doctrine of Christ. So let me set this up. I know this will be a little lengthy, so bear with me, but this is my introduction. Once there was a young man who went into a great deal of debt. He was warned against it. He was warned about his creditor, but he ignored the warning. He borrowed more money than he should from an unworthy source and signed terms that were not necessarily favorable. Uh, He didn't even have to make monthly payments, just one lump sum long ways away. So far into the future, he just never thought it'd be a problem. He brushed it off and he signed the term. And he made token payments once in a while, even though he wasn't required to do so. Knowing that the due date was so far away, he just assumed that everything would work out. Well, like it always does, the day of reckoning came. The creditor showed up and demanded full payment. Well, he didn't have full payment. So the creditor said, I'm going to execute the terms of the contract, and I'm going to seize all your possessions and sell them, and you're going to go to jail. You agreed to that. He cries out for mercy, but mercy could not in that circumstance rob the demands of justice nor the creditor. But luckily, this young man had a friend who had been watching this patiently, and stepped forward as a mediator between the two and said, I will pay your debt to the creditor if you will accept me as your new creditor. Well, graciously accepted. And I think we all understand the situation I'm describing. This is us. We're all in this situation with the Savior. And I would like everyone to realize that our debt didn't disappear our debt to the demands of justice, our debt to whoever the other side is that you want to put there, our debt for the payment of our sins didn't simply disappear because Jesus paid it. It's just that the debt transferred from the creditor to the mediator. Now, what could the mediator do? Looking at the two extremes, the mediator could demand full payment. He has every right to do that. He has every right to charge us, the debtor, exactly the full payment that he paid for the debt. Or he could completely wipe it away with no payment on our side. He has the right to do that because he paid the debt to justice. He can extend 100% mercy and not require anything of us. 
But what Jesus does instead, he doesn't require the full debt, and he doesn't ask us to do nothing. The new deal on the table is what we call the gospel of Jesus Christ, or what Nephi calls the doctrine of Christ. It is simply the terms of the Savior's deal for which he considers the debt completely paid, and that his payment to justice satisfies the demands of justice, and you are now free of that debt. Now, let's be clear. If you do not accept or live up to the terms that Jesus has made, he does, in fact, reinstate the fullness of the debt. Doctrine and Covenant section 19, all men are commanded to repent. Verse 4, you either repent or you suffer. Jesus then says, I, God, have suffered these things that they might not have to suffer if they take the deal. Now, one of the conditions of the deal, as we see, will be repentance. But Jesus says, if you take the deal, you don't have to suffer. But if you do not repent, if you do not live up to the conditions of the new deal that Jesus offers, then you get the fullness of the debt back and you must go through your own Gethsemane experience and pay the debt yourself. Notice he says, you must suffer even as I. And then he describes that suffering that he went through. And and yet, even if we follow Jesus, Bryce, I think it's good for us to acknowledge this. Repentance and following Jesus does entail suffering. But I think the distinction there is in section 19 where the Lord says, if you reject the covenant, then you have to suffer even as I. So there's that that distinction there. So there's the deal, brothers and sisters. All of us have sinned and fallen short. All of us have a debt to the law. All of us have consequences we need to pay for that are extremely demanding. Uh, the scriptures describe an unquenchable agony. There's just no way we want to pay that debt. So the Savior steps forward and pays it and then turns to us and says, here's the conditions of the new deal. If you will live up to these conditions, then your debt is paid. If you won't, then you pay the fullness of the debt. So let's hear the deal. Let's hear the Savior's summary of his conditions. If you'll turn to 3 Nephi, when the Savior comes, he makes it really, really simple. 3 Nephi chapter 27, in verse 13, he says, I have given unto you my gospel, and this is my gospel which I have given unto you. And you might as well put a colon there where the dash is. Here is my gospel. And then by verse 21, verily, verily, I say unto you, this is my gospel. So whatever you think the gospel of Jesus Christ is, it fits between verses 13 and 21 of 3 Nephi 27. And this is the Savior himself saying, here is my gospel. The gospel is the good news. And the good news of the deal that the Savior offers us is to get out of the huge debt. So here's the gospel. Ready? I'm going to start back in verse 13. 3 Nephi 27, 13. Behold, I have given unto you my gospel, and this is the gospel which I have given unto you, that I came into the world to do the will of my Father, because my Father sent me. And my Father sent me that I might be lifted up upon the cross. So one major foundational truth of the gospel is the atonement of the Savior, Jesus Christ. Because of the atonement, watch what happens next. And after that I had been lifted up on the cross, that I might draw all men unto me. And as I have been lifted up by men, even so should men be lifted up by the Father. That's what we call the resurrection. 
because of the atoning sacrifice of the Savior, all men will be resurrected. To do what? Look at the very next part. To stand before me to be judged of their work. So here's the reality. Ready? Because of the atonement of Jesus Christ, everyone's going to be resurrected. And everyone's going to stand before God. You cannot run far enough to avoid that. You can't hide under a big enough mountain. You will stand before the Father to be judged, every single one of us. Now, normally that thought strikes terror into our souls. And so the Savior says, here's the deal. Ready? When you stand before the Father on Judgment Day, look at verse 16 and see if you can find a word that you would like to describe you on Judgment Day when you face the Father. Jesus says, if you do these things, I will hold you guiltless. The deal on the table is that if you do these things, when you stand before the Father, you will be guiltless. No guilt. No guilt on Judgment Day. How about verse 19? What's the other word? Nothing enter into his rest save those who have been washed. They're clean. Now, remember, you don't have to be perfect. You just have to be clean. The deal is to clean you. You haven't been perfect, and so he can clean you. If you take the deal, if you live up to his conditions, you will be guiltless and washed and clean on Judgment Day. And then there's one more in verse 20, and that is at the very end, if you do these things, you will stand spotless before me at the last day. There's the deal, brothers and sisters. Now, we're going to get into the, the, the list. If you do these things, when the power of the atonement resurrects you and brings you before the Father, you will be guiltless, washed, clean, spotless, sinless. Now, are you interested in the deal? Has he got your attention? You can be guiltless on Judgment Day. Not because you're perfect, but because he, he paid the price and you're washed. So let's find the deal. Now, you're not going to be surprised at this list. There's five items on the list. Five simple items. Ready? Verse 16, it shall come to pass that whoso repenteth. There's one item on the list. You have to repent and is baptized in my name. If he endures to the end, those are three items. So if you repent, you're baptized, and you endure to the end. So far, we've got three items on the list. You're starting to recognize the list? Jump down to verse 19. We're going to repeat some and add another one. No unclean thing can enter into his kingdom. Therefore, nothing entereth into his rest, save it be those that are washed their garments in my blood because of their faith. There's a fourth one. And the repentance of all their sins. That's a repeat. And their faithfulness unto the end. Again, he repeats that. So, so far, we've got faith, repentance, baptism, and endure to the end. Now, there's only one more verse left before the Savior sums it up and says, that's my gospel, so we expect to find it in this last verse, verse 20. Here's a beautiful summary of the deal. Ready? Here's the deal Jesus offers every living soul. Now, this is the commandment. Repent, that's on the list, all ye ends of the earth, and Come unto me. That's kind of our requirement to have faith in him. 
and be baptized in my name, that ye may be sanctified by the reception of the Holy Ghost. Notice that's more than just the confirmation that, re- that where you receive the promise. It's the actual receiving of and being sanctified by the Holy Ghost. So may I summarize the five. Ready? Here's the deal on the table. If you choose a life of faith, if you choose to act in faith, if you are constantly in a state of repentance where we change and we grow, and every time we make a mistake, we tear down the barrier and we get Jesus back into our life and we repent. And then you make and keep covenants like the baptismal covenant or the temple covenants that you add later in your life. And then if you are sanctified by the reception of the Holy Ghost and you do this in the long run, he's not interested in the short game, he's interested in the long game. If you endure to the end, if this is your life choice, When you are brought before Judgment Day, you have his promise that the payment has been made, the deal was kept, and you will be guiltless, washed, clean, spotless, sinless before the Father. That's the deal on the table. And sometimes we beat ourselves up because we see where we fall short, and we are all going to fall short. If the mark is Jesus... We all miss the mark. We just keep going. We get up one more time than we fall down, and we just keep trying, don't we? Yep, because you don't have to be perfect. You just have to take the deal and be cleansed by him. So this gospel of Christ is what Nephi calls the doctrine of Christ, kind of synonymous. Nephi says, I'm not going out of this world without summarizing the deal on the table, to make it very simple to everyone who reads this. He's going to teach it in plainness. Now, of the five, Nephi's going to emphasize three of them, and that's kind of how prophets work. Let's do this really quick, Mike. Let's jump through the scriptures, and every time the Savior talks about the gospel, you're going to see this same list of five things. For example, turn to section 138 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Starting in verse 32, thus was the gospel preached to those who have died in their sins without a knowledge of the truth or in transgression, having rejected the prophets. Now, as soon as they say gospel, let's summarize. Verse 33, these were taught faith in God, repentance, repentance, baptism, baptism for the remission of sins, gift of the Holy Holy Ghost, and all other principles that were necessary for them to know. By the way, I really like the, the word qualify. So I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, like scholarships, verse 34, qualify. If I get a scholarship rise to a university, and let's say it's a really expensive university, let's say it costs $50,000 a year, which which is sad to say it's not, that's not that expensive, I guess, yeah, today. Yeah, not anymore. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, so if, if I get a scholarship, did I earn the $50,000 a year? I, I didn't earn the money, but what did I do? You qualified. Yeah. And, and I love that word. We qualify for salvation, but we don't earn it. Jesus earned it. He paid the price. Anyway, I know that's a really subtle thing, but our enemies sometimes attack us and say, you guys think that you earn salvation. And I'm like, well, no, not if you read the text. Anyway. Yeah. Let's do another one. Turn to section 20 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Again, this is section 20 is kind of the constitution of the church, how the church is organized. So we should, we should expect to find all five summarized in section 20. Ready? Look at verse 25. 
that as many as would believe, believe, be baptized, be baptized, endure in faith, endure in faith. Jump down to verse twenty-seven. What do we add? Believe in the gifts and callings and of the Holy Ghost. Yeah, which bears record of the Father and the Son. And then verse twenty-nine, we get another summary. Ready? There it is. Repent and believe. Worship the Father in his name and endure in faith. So in other words, every single time Jesus talks about the gospel, he seems to bring this list back up. What's fun is if you will take any principle of the gospel, you can fit it into those five. Take, for example, the word of wisdom. The word of wisdom is a law of revelation and tells you how to get the Holy Ghost into your life. The word of wisdom is an act of faith and trust. The word of wisdom is part of our covenant as membership in the church. All of these will fit in the five. And by the way, symbols also fit. There's the word in Greek, it's lambano. It means to receive, but it also means to lay hold on. And so in the Gospel of John, there's this fascinating verse, which really hits me because it makes me think of the temple, but it also makes me think of Third Nephi. So it says, you know, in the beginning was the word and the word was God. And then the same was in the beginning with God. But then later in the text... It says this, verse 10, John 1, he was in the world and the world was made by him and the world knew him not. He came unto his own and his own received him not, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. And the word received, lambano, literally means to take with your hand. Covenant. And I read this and I see it as This is 3 Nephi, where they did, and they came and they touched him. Now, it can also mean receive, but it it really means to to seize or grasp. And I'm back to Nephi's vision. What a powerful image. I come to the tree by seizing the rod. Then I think about this. in, In Roman coins and in early Greek coins, the symbol of the word is fides to the Romans, but the word is pistis to the Greeks. The symbol of faith was the handshake. Well, just think about that as a symbol and think about all the things that are sacred. All the hands that we shake. It's so powerful. So I love this the idea of covenant. I, we're back Grasping. to, yeah, grasp my hand, Hold Jesus in. says, come to me. And it's so simple, right? And it's those images. It's move forward with faith in Christ. Fix the mistakes that you make, which you will, and they're expected, but repent, grab his hand, make covenants with him, both in the waters of baptism and in the holy temples, and then be sanctified by the reception of the Holy Ghost and endure to the end. That, brothers and sisters, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's do one more, just so you can see how abundant it is. Everyone turn to section 39 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Here's kind of a small one. Look at verse 6. All in one verse, he says, This is my gospel, repentance and baptism by water. And then cometh the baptism of fire and the Holy Ghost, even the Comforter, which showeth all things and teacheth the peaceable things of the kingdom. There it is. Pretty it's simple. so simple. By the way, this is illustrated all over the place. All over. So it's like if we don't get the simple verses, then they go on for chapters talking about, let me, okay, let's illustrate it, right? It was brilliant when you said this. And so if you haven't listened to the stuff that we did on First Nephi 8, you're going to want to go back and listen to that. That image of the tree and the rod and everything is what we're talking about. Yeah. 
It's beautiful. It's, it's, it's the gospel of Jesus. And so now what prophets often do is it would be a lot to swallow all five of them. And so prophets quite often say, well, I'm going to focus on this one or I'm going to focus on this one. So Nephi's now going to tune in and focus primarily on three of them. His main focus of chapter 31 is baptism and then enduring to the end. He's going to talk about baptism and the path. He will mention all of them, but he's going to focus in on baptism. And then in chapter 32, it's Holy Ghost. So Nephi's going to focus in on baptism, Holy Ghost, and endure to the end. So that's going to be our subject this week as we talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Baptism, Holy Ghost, and endure to the end. So let's turn to chapter 31, and Nephi begins by a very simple question. Okay, let's talk about baptism. Why was Jesus baptized? Now, we typically say, well, baptism is the act of a remission of your sins. You get, you get baptized to wash away your sins. And that is certainly true. And let's declare that anyone who joins the church and is baptized washes away their sins. But why was Jesus baptized? He didn't need to be in terms of sin. But Nephi is very clear here saying, Verse 5, if the Lamb of God, he being holy, should have need to be baptized by water to fulfill all righteousness, then we should as well. So baptism is more than just the remission of sin. Sometimes we limit baptism to, well, if you join the church, your sins get erased and you start off on a clean slate. And yes, that's true, but you've missed the essence of baptism. Jesus needed to be baptized even though he had no sins to wash away. Eight-year-olds don't have any sins to wash away, but eight-year-olds need to be baptized. All of us need to be baptized. So why was Jesus baptized? Verse 7, know ye not that he was holy, notwithstanding he being holy, he showeth unto the children of man that according to the flesh, he humbleth himself before the Father. So one reason Jesus was baptized was to set the example for us. But beyond that, listen carefully. He humbleth himself before the Father and witnesseth unto the Father that he would be obedient unto him in keeping his commandments. He's committing now, let me illustrate, see if I can use a modern example to say, show what baptism is. It is possible in this world to walk into a car lot where they're selling brand new cars. I can walk into a car lot and take home a $50,000 vehicle without having paid more than a couple thousand dollars, maybe. In fact, I might even be able to walk off without paying a dime with a brand new car that I didn't pay anything for, but why do they let me take the car? What did I give them? You gave that was, signature. That was it. I signed a document. And in our society, if you sign a document, you are bound to the terms that you made with them. And if you don't, they will enforce the consequences in the terms because your signature is your binding act to say, okay, I'm so serious, I'm going to sign this. And that signature is enough for the car company to let that multi-thousand dollar vehicle off their lot. God does the same thing. He requires us to sign the deal. 
And baptism is the signature. It's the signing of the deal. It's the commitment. That end of verse 7, it is how we witness unto the Father that we will be obedient. It's Heavenly Father, I'm in. I'm on the team. You've got me. So Bryce, let's do this. What do you say to somebody who says, I didn't know what I was doing when I was eight years old. I didn't know the covenant I was making. Therefore, it's not fair. What what, how, what would be your response there? It is true that eight-year-olds should not bind 18-year-olds or 20-year-olds or 50-year-olds because eight-year-olds aren't mature enough to bind themselves at 20. But the reality is this is not a one-time covenant. It's a constantly renewable covenant. Eight-year-olds only bind eight-year-olds. Good. And so if the 20-year-old wants to sign the document, then the 20-year-old signs the document himself. And so what we do is, well, let's just change the token of the covenant instead of filling the font every single week, which we could do. Instead of filling the font and just renewing the covenant with immersion, let's change the token. But it's the same covenant. It's the same covenant. It's yeah. the same ordinance. Let's just change the covenant, or the token, and we'll use a piece of bread and a cup of water, yeah. but we'll, re- we'll renew the same covenant. And so the 20-year-old who doesn't want to be bound by what the 8-year-old does did isn't. The 8-year-old bound the 8-year-old. And if the 20-year-old wants to re-sign, then the 20-year-old walks in there, takes the sacrament, and re-signs the covenant. And the Lord simply says, this is an ongoing, renewable covenant all the time. And may I even suggest that it's, it's possible to renew the covenant without even taking the token. The covenant can be renewed in our hearts every night when I kneel down and I say, Heavenly Father, I'm in. I've made some mistakes. I'm not perfect. I'm going to repent. I am repenting. I'm changing. But man, you have my heart. Man, I'm in. And we sign that document over and over and over and again. Especially in circumstances where maybe you can't take the sacrament. Right. You have the experience in Mosiah where they're just in bondage and they can't do the things that maybe people that have religious freedom could do. Or what if you're in an occupied country? Or what if, frankly, you're in a country right now where they're locking it down and they're like, we're not having church services right now. Some saints right now are facing uh, situations where we're just locked down. We're bound. We're homebound. And yet you can still make covenants with God. You can still bind yourself to him and, regardless of your circumstance. Right. And to the degree that we can, we ought to get to the sacrament. We ought to take it because that is the way the Lord has intended. The idea here is taking the Savior's deal by showing a commitment can happen in our hearts every day. Let me show you a follow-up scripture. If you'll turn to Alma chapter 7, he's going to say that same thing. He's going to distinguish between the commitment to obey and the going into the water. So go to verse 15. This is Alma in Gideon, one of my favorite sermons in the Book of Mormon. I love this. And so verse 15, I say unto you, come and fear not and lay aside every sin. Well, isn't that faith and repentance right there? Yep. Lay aside every sin which doth easily beset you, which doth bind you down to destruction. Yea, come and go forth and show unto your God that you are willing to repent of your sins and enter into a covenant with him to keep his commandments. That's the covenant. Now notice the token. And witness it unto him this day by going into the waters of baptism. The waters of the baptism is the formal token that 
signs the deal. But baptism, baptism, brothers and sisters, is simply giving God your commitment to keep his commandments and sign the deal. And it's a lifetime commitment. It's not a one-time. We renew that covenant, but I'm committing myself for life. So back to Third Nephi, Jesus was baptized, and then he gets up from his baptism, and in verse 10, what does he say? 31.10. So as soon as yeah. Jesus is baptized, he says, Follow thou me. It's not just the follow me into the waters of baptism. Yeah. It's follow me into what? Well, he says, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, can we follow Jesus, say we shall be willing to keep the commandments of the Father? And so I think what Nephi is trying to say is this is a token where we bind ourselves to God, where we're going to keep the commandments. And I really like the idea of we're listening to the voice of the Spirit in our lives, and we're following that. Um, by the way, I don't know how your mission was in Mexico City, but I remember on my mission, we would read with our investigators these verses, you know, 8, 9, 10, and 11, and we would invite them to follow Jesus' example to make and keep covenants and to be baptized. Because in the next verse, verse 11, it says, The Father said, Repent ye, repent ye, and be baptized in the name of my beloved Son. And the voice of the Son came unto me, saying, He that is baptized in my name, to him will the Father give the Holy Ghost, like unto me. Wherefore, follow me and do the things which ye have seen me do. And so it's an invitation for us to be like Jesus. We're really being invited into a fraternity of people that are like the Savior. We're all committed. We've all signed the document. We're on the team. You know, we're in the group. And so now notice he transitions from baptism into if you will make that deal, if you will sign that contract and sign that covenant and enter into a covenant with God and be baptized that, that you're going to follow Jesus, then I'm going to give you some help. I'm going to help sanctify you through the reception of the Holy Ghost. So now we get to verse 13, wherefore, my beloved brethren. I know that if ye will follow the Son with full purpose of heart, acting no hypocrisy and no deception before God, but with real intent, really trying to follow Jesus, repenting of your sins, witnessing unto the Father that ye are willing to take upon you the name of Christ by baptism, yea, by following your Lord and your Savior down into the waters according to his word, behold, then shall ye receive the Holy Ghost." And then cometh the baptism of fire and of the Holy Ghost. And then you can speak with the tongue of angels and shout praises unto the Holy One. It's such a simple plan. As soon as you commit to follow Jesus and keep his commandments, you get divine assistance. He helps you do that very thing. And so he gives us the gift of the Holy Ghost, and we are then starting a process of, of cleansing ourselves and redeeming ourselves and sanctifying ourselves through the reception of the Holy Ghost. I remind you that when hands were laid upon your head at your confirmation, you were told to receive the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost wasn't commanded to enter you. You were commanded to receive it. Receiving the Holy Ghost means that you live your life as an invitation for the Holy Ghost to come into your heart. You pray, you live your life as an invitation to be sanctified by the Holy Ghost. So let's summarize in verse 17. Wherefore, do the things which I have told you, I have seen that your Lord and your Savior should do. For for this cause they've been shown unto me, that you might know the gate by which you should enter. For the gate by which you should enter is repentance and baptism. 
by water, and then cometh a remission of your sins by fire and by the Holy Ghost. And then you are in this straight and narrow path. And if you endure to the end, you're going to make it. Now, we're going to pause there and go to 32 because he's going to expand on receiving the Holy Ghost in 32. And then we're going to come back to a beautiful promise, probably the greatest promise in the Scriptures, that if you will start this path, if you will commit to God to keep the commandments through a covenant, if you'll be baptized and repent, if you'll get in that path and then just walk down that path for the rest of your life, Nephi is going to quote the Father and give us one of the greatest promises I think there is in the Scriptures. But before we do that, let's jump to 32, Mike. Let's, let's talk about the Holy Ghost, because Nephi begins 32 by saying, I don't think you get it. I don't think you understand. You're pondering in your heart what happens after baptism, what happens for the rest of your life, because if you're baptized when you're eight, what do you do for the next 70-plus years? Yeah. What what happens after baptism? And then Nephi says, look, you shouldn't be pondering. You shouldn't wonder what to do next because here it is. And so chapter 32 is all about what comes next is following the Holy Ghost. And I think following the Holy Ghost is this entering into this family, right? He says, you know, you're going to make the covenant and you're willing to take upon yourself the name and I think that means you know we're part of his family. Yeah, it's like being born into the Dunford family. You become a Dunford. Yeah, you get the name. You know, and when so, you're a Dunford, and everyone judges the Dunford. Oh, you're a Dunford. Yeah. Well, when you when you join this family, you become you carry the name of Christ, and we are known as Little Christ. Yeah. And oh, you're in the Christ. You're in Christ's family. By the way, there's so many places in the Doctrine and Covenants. This is a fascinating study of. What does it mean to take the name? But then also, what are the blessings when I'm doing these things that Bryce is talking about with these five things, when I'm repenting or if I'm praying or if I'm receiving the Holy Ghost, what does that mean with my relationship to the Savior? And what does that mean with me being cleansed? And so I just want to put some of these ideas into your hearts, into your minds. I really do believe that all the time the Lord is forgiving us. I call these justification events, where God says, Bryce, you've checked in. You're clean. So many times Joseph would pray, and one of his questions was, he was so stressed. And I think part of this came out of his culture, because it it was hammered at the pulpits of Christendom during Joseph's life that were just so (laughs) irreparable. And so he was just so concerned about his sins, and every time, right? Remember when he's 17 and he's praying, the first thing we're on is like, yeah, yeah, Joseph, your sins, we're good. You're cleansed. Um, But let me tell you about the Book of Mormon. Or when Joseph went into the sacred grove, he was worried about this, and he was forgiven. In the 31st section of the Doctrine and Covenants, in verse 5, it says, and this is the Lord speaking to Thomas B. Marsh, but the Lord says in verse 5, thrust in your sickle with all your soul, and your sins are forgiven you. And so I want to invite you, the listener, to just do this sometime when you read the Doctrine and Covenants and just pay attention to the many times when the Lord says your sins are forgiven. Because, Bryce, it's, I believe it. I believe if you really intend, you take the sacrament, the Lord says, Bryce, you're clean. I think the Lord is more willing to free us of sin and cleanse us. And that. Then the point is getting the Holy Ghost cleanses you of sin. Yes. So every act that brings the Holy Ghost into my life is an act of cleansing. Yeah. And we're constantly being cleansed. 
Notice what Nephi says in the 32nd chapter in verse 1. Behold, why do you ponder these things in your hearts? Verse 2. Do you not remember that I have said unto you that after you've received the Holy Ghost, you could speak with the tongue of angels? And now how could you speak with the tongue of angels, save it were by the Holy Ghost? What if the angels in heaven speak the words of the Holy Ghost? And what if there are angels in heaven that prompt you? And they're speaking the words of the Holy Ghost, and then you speak those words, and you become like unto an angel. And what is an angel? An angel is a messenger. The messengers of God are angels. So what if one of those angels is named Russell Marion Nelson? Right. And he speaks with the tongue of an angel by the power of the Holy Ghost. That's another form of the Holy Ghost speaking to you. Yes. So verse 3, angels speak by the power of the Holy Ghost, wherefore they speak the words of Christ. Wherefore I say, feast upon the words of Christ, for behold, the words of Christ will tell you all things what you should do. I, I read verse like 3 and 4, and in a way I want to just package this idea that the heavens are always open to us. And as we make and keep covenants, these impressions that come are from God, but you could also say that they're from angels. There's a really good talk by Elder Holland. It's in the 2008 conference, The Ministry of Angels, where he makes a couple of really interesting statements that I just love, where he says, from the beginning down through the dispensations, God has used angels as his emissaries in conveying love and concern for his children. Usually such beings are not seen, but sometimes they are. But seen or unseen, they are always near. Sometimes their assignments are very grand and have significance for the whole world. Sometimes the messages are more private. Occasionally the angelic purpose is to warn, but most often it is to comfort, to provide some form of merciful attention, guidance in difficult times. I testify that angels are sent to help us, even as they were sent to help Adam and Eve, to help the prophets, and indeed, to help the Savior of the world himself. Matthew records in his gospel that after Satan attempted Christ in the wilderness, quote, angels came and ministered unto him, end quote. Even the Son of God, a God himself, had need for heavenly comfort during his sojourn in mortality. And so, such ministrations will be to the righteous until the end of time. When I teach this passage, I like to talk about the personal relationship of angels. I like to talk about their reality, to testify of the Holy Ghost, and to talk about times. I like to illustrate with examples from church history about people that have had angels nearby. I just remember when I was really young, Bryce, and I I was just in a really dark place, and I remember I read the Book of Mormon, and I'll never forget it. And I had just had an experience that just caused me just, I don't even know what words can't describe it. My feeling is this, and I can't prove it, but my feeling is there was probably somebody on the other side who knows me that was like, okay, now Mike's, he's listening. I'm going to talk to him. And I can't wait to meet whoever that was. Because I think I really, I think it's a person. And I, I think there's a reason why the angel John the Baptist came to restore the keys of the Aaronic priesthood. That's a really personal thing. It could have been, it could have been Adam. It could have been anybody. But I think the message to the world was, this angel, John, we're going to send him because everybody's going to get who that was. I, I really do believe this, that when we feel the Spirit, it could be someone very close to us. I, I love when the anti-Nephi-Lehi's are being slaughtered by their brethren, and Ammon is so concerned. 
It says the following, Alma, 30, or Alma 27, 4, when Ammon and his brethren saw this work of destruction among those who, so dearly, who they so dearly beloved and among those who so dearly beloved them, and I listen to this phrase, for they were treated as though they were angels sent from God to save them from everlasting destruction. And those were living Ammon, Aaron, Omner, Himni. There are beings on both sides of the veil that are sent to save us from an everlasting destruction. And uh, we got to understand that with the gift of the Holy Ghost comes this opening of the door to be taught and loved and cared for and directed and angels will speak. And by the power of the Holy Ghost, you get help and you'll know what to do. And that's the promise. If you'll make the covenant, if you'll sign the contract, he will send angels sent to save you from an everlasting destruction. Sometimes it's a guy who shows up to help you push your car. Sometimes it's someone who my daughter was working at a bakery and a man with a gun entered. And suddenly there was an old man who stood between my daughter and the man with the gun. She'd never seen the old man before. The old man said that he saw the man with the gun go into the store. And he came in, knowing that there was a young girl in there. She'd never seen that old man ever before. But suddenly there was an old man there who ran the man with the gun out of the store. God will send angels to save you. And they are everywhere in our lives. Unseen and sometimes seen. I wanted to share a story about Orson Hyde. He was an apostle that lived during the time of Brigham Young. And I just can't even imagine how hard this would be during the time of Brigham Young because Bryce Brigham Young could put his arm around you and say, Bryce, I know you just planted these potatoes and I know you got this beautiful farm, but now we're sending you to Mexico or now we're sending you to Nevada. And uh, Brigham Young was pretty brilliant. What he saw was he saw this great basin kingdom, and anywhere where there was water, he sent the saints. And I think it was Brigham's brilliant way of saying, I'm going to fill these mountains with saints, and anywhere where there's water, we're going to lay claim to it because, you know, if you don't have water, you don't have much. And so during this time period, 1855-ish, he sends Orson Hyde to the foot of the Sierra Nevadas on the eastern side. And I can't imagine how hard that would be. And so he goes there and he's trying to establish a settlement. And at one point he has to go get supplies and he has to go over the Sierras and it's winter. Now I've driven over the Sierras in the winter and that's pretty sketchy stuff. And it gets really, really cold. And, and maybe the listeners, maybe out there, maybe you've heard of the Donner party. Like I'm not trying to make light of this, but this is just not a good thing. And he goes over the Sierras. He tries a couple times and he can't do it. It's just too cold and the snow is so horrible. And he's thinking, what am I doing? At one point he makes snowshoes and he's like, we're doing this. And so he goes over there, but then there's all this snow and he just gets stuck and he lights a fire for the night. This is in a book. It's called Orson Hyde, the Olive Branch of Israel, and it's by Myrtle Hyde. And I'm just going to read a couple things right off of page uh, 347. Uh, in the middle of the page, it says, it was about eight o'clock at night, and he got back to his site, and he says, to the doleful accompaniment of howling wolves in the dark forest, Orson poked among the coals, put on some wood, and kindled a blaze. Fire warmed him a little and dried him a bit, but his urgent need was for rest. 
As the prolonged night passed, he alternately burnt and froze. His feet felt less and less a part of his body. Frostbite had apparently begun, and home was many miles away. Orson perceived that his mind was slipping, and knowing that a freezing person gradually loses awareness and sleeps peacefully into death, he supposed that he had almost accomplished his earthly mission. In his mind's eye, he's like, you know what? I'm just going to go to sleep. I'm done. I'm going to go to sleep and I'm going to be okay because it's just going to be a peaceful exit out of mortality. And so he does. He goes to sleep and he just thinks I'm done. Well, what happens? Orson, this is the next page, page 348. In his snow-surrounded nest on the plateau of the second summit of the Sierra Nevada mountains, Orson expected death during the bleak night of December 22nd and 23rd, 1855. Numbness of mind and limb increased. Though he tried to combat sleep in his warm and frigid berth near his ebbing fire, toward dawn a new sensation enveloped him, comfort, when incredulously he felt the gentle touch of hands upon his head. Now think about this. You're Orson Hyde. You're in the middle of nowhere. The only thing you can hear is wolves, and you're dying. And then someone's touching his head. Afterward, he was unsure whether his mortal eyes had opened his spiritual eyes only visualized, but the hands belonged to his mother. Lovingly concerned, she bent over him. Now, I didn't mention this, but brothers and sisters, Orson's mother died when he was a seven-year-old kid. Think about that for a second. He hasn't seen her for years. He's a grown man. Last time he saw her, he was a child. So he opens his eyes, he sees his mother, and this is what she says. Her employing words were, Get up, my boy. Go on. Go on. And it quickened his heart and mind. And there's more to the story, but uh, just those words got him to not die. Got him up. Got him moving. Once you're moving in the cold, you're still cold, but at least you're not going to die. And I remember reading that story thinking right when he needed it, there was help. To me, what Elder Holland's talking about in his talk from 2008, and I think so many times we have these experiences, and to me, I think this is what Nephi is saying, is if you get on the path and you walk on the path, there are angels, and they're going to bless you. You're going to know what to say. Sometimes they're going to put thoughts in your mind. And by the way, to, to Nephi in Second Nephi 32, look in verse 8 and 9. There's this invitation to ask for it. Pray. And by the way, what's the devil going to do? He's, he's going to tell you not He's going to tell you not to at the end of verse 8. There's got to be a connection between Holy Ghost, angels, and prayer. Yeah. I love that they all come together in chapter 32, Holy Ghost, angels, and prayer. We invite more revelation through prayer. Prayer is a means of receiving revelation. Angels come. Holy Ghost. If you do this, and I just think what Nephi's saying here is, if you'll live a life of faith and repent when you sin, repentance isn't just an act for act change as much as it's a constant trying to become. If you live a life of faith, repenting of your transgressions, repenting and becoming different and make covenants, and you sign the document, verse 5, 2 Nephi 32, verse 5. I just think this is a beautiful summary. For behold, again, I say unto you that if you will enter in by the way, all those things that I just mentioned, if you will enter in by the way and receive the Holy Ghost, it will show unto you all things what you should do.
That doesn't mean they may all come through promptings as the Holy Ghost is known. Sometimes it comes through other people. Sometimes it comes through the scriptures. Sometimes it comes through prophets. Or your mom. Sometimes it comes from your mom. <laughs> Sometimes it comes from, you know, yes, it does come from a prompting from the Holy Ghost. But it's a, it's, it's a whole team effort that if you will enter in by the way, if you will make faith and repentance and covenants your life choice— then the Holy Ghost will make sure you know what you need to do. And here's another uh, thought. If you're a parent and you get an impression that your child needs to hear a message, you are the Holy Ghost to them. The, right. the Spirit the is telling you, you've got to say this. Yeah, you're the angel. Now, there is a disclaimer here. Go to the chapter 33, verse 1. There is a disclaimer. The only thing the Holy Ghost can do is what, Mike? Carry it unto your hearts, but not into your heart. Therefore... Our responsibility is you've got to pull it in. You've got to take the, so he hands it to you. He brings it unto your heart, but whether or not it resonates inside you, that's your job. Now, I love verse six. This is 33, 2 Nephi 33, six. Perhaps my single favorite word in the Book of Mormon because of what it means is in verse six. And I think this is the goal of the whole Book of Mormon is to get to this point. Verse 6, Nephi says, I glory in plainness, I glory in truth, I glory in my Jesus. I pulled him in. I made him mine. He's not our, he's not your, he's not my mom and dad's Messiah. He's not the church's Jesus. He's not my dad's Jesus. He's not the Jesus of my mission years. He's my Jesus. And I think there's a tie to the Holy Ghost will bring it unto your heart, but you have to bring it into your heart and make him your Jesus. I like it. Make it mine. Make it mine. So when is the Book of Mormon going to be your book? Yeah. When is the Messiah going to be your Messiah? Too many people bear testimony of the Messiah. Sometimes we get a little bit better and say, I bear testimony of our Messiah. But if you've pulled Jesus into your heart, you need to be able to bear testimony of my Jesus. I bear testimony of my Jesus. Now, I'd love to go back to chapter 31. Is there anything you, you want to say, Mike, before we talk about that great promise? Oh, there's so many cool stories I love about angels. I do, too. We could I, just spend oh. hours talking about them. I think it's really good to talk about family experiences. And so I would just open your minds up to that listener to think about when have you had experiences with the divine and share them with your kids. One of my favorite ladies in church history, her name is Lydia Knight. I just want to just paint a story and then maybe it will encourage you to go read her story. She marries this fellow when she's a young girl and his name is Calvin and he abandons her after she has two children. And to me, growing up, there's nothing more sacred to me than a mother who just doesn't have a husband, just such a challenge. And then her children die. So imagine you're this woman in the 1800s and your husband left you and your children have died and she's just in such straits and she moves to Canada and she meets the missionaries and just has a marvelous experience when she marries a fellow by the name of Newell Knight. Well, I'm not going to tell you the rest of the story. You're just going to have to go to the show notes and listen to it. But she it's such a beautiful story about this woman that the Lord loves, and she gets angels. To me, I struggle with some of these passages because they're almost so simple. And that's why my brain, I like Isaiah. I'm like, let's geek out on the Bible. And then so when I read these, I think, 
okay, this is really simple. And that's why I'm, I really appreciate Bryce just laying it down like here it is. And so when I teach it, I talk about some of the personal things, the personal experiences. So I would encourage you to do that. Another, If you've never seen the film 17 Miracles, those events are historical. The people that had those experiences really did have them. And, and for those of you that haven't seen the film, 17 Miracles is a movie that was made with these stories of the handcarts. And the handcart pioneers came across, and, and many of them did fine. Most of the handcart companies were just Jim Dandy. They made it here great. But there were a couple companies that came, and the snows came early, and there was a lot of devastation. And so they wrote down their experiences. And in the midst of this trauma, they had experiences with angels. That's just a really good movie. If you're in a family setting, and you're like, let's talk about heaven and the Holy Ghost. And boy, you could watch that. Uh, great film. And there's some books about the handcart pioneers. And one was called The Price We Paid. It's really good. I think most of us have made these covenants. It's one thing, Bryce, to know that we've made them, but it's another thing, can I even teach this? Can you explain it? And that's why I really appreciate what you've done because you're like, hey, these things are really easy. Faith, repentance, baptism, gifts of the Holy Ghost, endure to the end. But yet, can you teach it? Can you teach it to your kids? So anyway, those are my two plugs is make it personal and maybe even with you, when you're with your kids or in a gospel doctrine setting, ask somebody, okay, well, can you define these terms and let's talk about it. So where are we going now, Bryce? Let's get to the promise, so the great promise. Okay. Go back to chapter 31. So here's the idea. If you enter into the gate if, through faith, repentance, baptism, the reception of the Holy Ghost, other covenants, temple covenants, all of those things, if you'll enter into the gate and endure to the end. Listen to this promise. Now, brothers and sisters, I just, I have searched the scriptures and cannot find an equivalent promise. We love prophets when they promise. When a prophet promises, we take a prophet at its word. When Nephi says this, when Lehi says, if you keep the commandments, you'll prosper in the land, we take it at his word. We love it when Jesus makes the promise. Boy, when he says it, it just kind of tugs a little bit at our heartstrings. But what does it mean when the Father himself, when the Father himself puts his name on a covenant? I cannot find anywhere else in the scriptures where the Father comes down and says, make sure you put my name on that covenant. This is my promise. So I'm back in chapter 31, verse 20. Ready? One of the great promises of the scriptures, if not the greatest promise, if you will enter in the gate, okay, sign the document, re-sign the document consistently, give God your heart, faith, repentance, baptism, gift of the Holy Ghost, the life of a saint, ready? If you'll just do that, verse 20, wherefore ye must press forward with a steadfastness in Christ. That's another way of saying endure to the end. Press forward with a steadfastness in Christ, having a perfect brightness of hope and a love of God and of all men. It's a great summary. Now listen to this promise, if and then. Wherefore, if ye shall press forward, feasting upon the word of Christ, and endure to the end. And the end I would suggest here is death. The end can't be the celestial kingdom. The Lord would not word the promise the way he does if the end were the celestial kingdom. The end here has to be death. So in other words, if you are a faithful person, repenting, keeping your covenants, following the Holy Ghost, just living the normal life of a Jesus follower, 
if you will just make your normal, reasonable efforts to follow Christ, if you will feast upon the words, and if you're doing that when you die, are you ready? Behold, thus saith the Father, ye shall have eternal life. You're going to make it. You will be in the celestial kingdom. You will have eternal life. If you die on the path, you don't fall off the path in the spirit world. If you are on the path, if you are pressing forward and endure to the end, meaning you're doing that when you die, thus saith the Father, you will have eternal life. For all practical purposes, your calling and election is made sure. The day you die on the path, your calling and election is made sure because the Father declares that you're going to be in the celestial kingdom. And you're not going to fall off the path in the spirit world. You're not going to fall off the path in the eons to come. You will continue down that path. You will make it to the celestial kingdom. Yeah, It's like we talked about in our last podcast, grace for grace. If you're in the process of growing grace for grace, and then you die, you will continue that process in the spirit world. You are going to make it. It gives me confidence and it gives me hope. It's kind of like learning a language. Those of you that have learned a language, you're going to make all these mistakes along the way. But man, if you're plugging away one to two hours a day and you just keep hammering at it, you know what? You're pretty soon you're speaking the language. And then guess what? Even when you're speaking the language, are you perfect? Nope. No. By the way, I've been doing English for a few years and I still butcher it and say, uh, duh, and mess up my words. I love what Elder F. Burton Howard said. He's going to quote Elder Russell Ballard where he said this in the 96th Conference April. um, He said, quote, life isn't over for a Latter-day Saint until he or she is safely dead with their testimony still burning brightly. Safely dead. What a challenging concept. Brothers and sisters, we will not be safe until we have given our hearts to the Lord, until we have learned to do what we have promised to do. Safely dead. What does that mean? And so I think it's okay in our lives to pray, Heavenly Father, help me endure today. Help me hold to the rod today. Even prophets have prayed that prayer, haven't they? Yep. And die on the path. This is salvation. You can do it. When we ask Latter-day Saints, are you going to make it? I usually receive, uh, I don't know, I'd like, uh, uh, and the idea is, well, are you moving forward? Yes. Are you trying your best? Yes. Do you want to follow Jesus? Yes. Do you love Jesus? Yes. Are you trying to follow him? Are you going to do that for the rest of your life? Well, if you do that for the rest of your life, thus saith the Father, you will be in the celestial kingdom. What's the problem here? We need to have hope. Yeah. We need to have trust. And that's the deal on the table because you're, you're, you're completing the requirements of the deal and that's where Jesus makes the payment and that you're going to be saved. Brothers and sisters, I bear you my solemn testimony that all we really need to do is follow Christ and do our very best to do what he's doing, to live like him, to invite him into our life. Faith, repentance, covenants, Holy Ghost, endure to the end. Thus saith the Father, ye shall have eternal life. That's his promise, and that's my testimony. He's going to take us home. So with that, Nephi closes, and we'll see you next week when we start Jacob. Thanks for listening. Goodbye, everyone.